there's like a running apology. Um, all right. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for the rain. Um, thank you for mothers. And uh, we're just excited to be here to talk about your grace and to worship. And uh, Lord, I just I would pray that this class time would prepare our hearts um, to worship you rightly. And that as we speak, um, it's easy in these topics to... Um, kind of look at the world around us and even the church with kind of a glass half empty um, tone but uh, we are hopeful we you know we know that you don't need us to defend you and ultimately your will uh, will be done and so I pray that we would be hopeful in that and um, that this would be instructive for us and um, helpful for us as we think about our own lives and as we trust in you in Jesus name amen all right, week three, sola gratia. I think I said that right. Grace alone. Um, continue to use the Cambridge Declaration just to define the terms. We reaffirm that in salvation we are rescued from God's wrath by His grace alone. It is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ by releasing us from our bondage to sin and raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. We deny that salvation is in any sense a human work, human methods, techniques, or strategies by themselves cannot accomplish this transformation. Faith is not produced by our unregenerated human nature. Okay? So I've underlined some key terms there um, to define the meaning of grace alone. First, the word grace. Um, Grace, you know, just means undeserved kindness, uh, undeserved favor. Um, God relates to mankind in salvation by grace um, or unmerited favor, undeserved favor. Uh, it's important to know, like, he's the party um, that that we are being rescued from. So it's not like God, like, we're hanging over this whatever, this pool of suffering of our own making. Of like, like we're hanging over God's fire. Like it's it's a he's the party whom we have injured and the one who owns the right to enact justice on us for what we've done to him. And that's when we talk about God's wrath, that's what we're being saved from. We're not just being saved from our problem. Our problem has put us in danger of the wrath of God, and that's what we're being saved from. So that's why grace is kind of up to God to give. A couple of passages there. Uh, Ephesians 1 is probably... More well known for my grace, you can save through faith. This is not of yourselves, but a gift of God. Second um, Timothy one nine. Somebody know what that says? I should. I wrote it down years ago. Uh, 
know, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Is that? That's First Timothy. That's not right. Come on, Mike. Get it together. All right, the gospel of the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Okay, sounds a lot like Ephesians 1 and 2. Okay, so that's what the word grace means. Bondage to sin. This was um, a key principle of um, the Reformation, was trying to define what is the unregenerate state of a human being. In other words, the unsaved state of someone that, you know, needs to be saved. And um, Luther, um, in his preface to Galatians, is that? I think that's what it was. um, Wrote just a really strong defense of um, this idea that we're in bondage. Um, and the debate between he and Erasmus about, okay, can, can unbelievers choose Christ? Can, you know, how does, what happens? Does God regenerate us before we're saved? Or, you know, all that, that whole discussion. Um, and the question really boiled down to how deeply does sin affect us? And Luther said it remains... Utter rebellion, it means utter rebellion against God and an unwillingness to change. Jeremiah 17, you know, can a leopard change its spots? Can Ethiopian change its skin? That's Jeremiah 17, right? I think so. Um, Romans 3 just kind of talks about the fact that we're, um, none of us is righteous, um, you know, in and of ourselves, apart from Christ, we're, uh, we don't have anything to bring to the table. And so um, <clears throat> we'll talk about why that's important in a minute. But um, that was kind of one of the key debates of the Reformation. And in my opinion, like if you bring in kind of the five points of Calvinism, um, the first one's the major one. If you deny the first one, then the rest of them might as well ignore. If you if you affirm the first one, though, the rest of them kind of follow, um, because depravity, as understood by Luther and Calvin, was this bondage idea that we're in chains. Okay, uh, unable to affect our own future, essentially. Spiritual death. Okay, so the fall if is completely unable to turn to God by our own will. No one chooses to follow Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, you go back to Ephesians 2, uh, where it says that we are dead in sin. Um, you can even go to John 3, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, talks about being born again. Um, the Spirit goes where it wants kind of thing. Like there's, there's something that has to happen to us that is dependent upon the Spirit. Otherwise, we remain dead. We remain in bondage. Uh, And then transformation. um, In an act of God's free grace, He pardons our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight. Uh, It's justification. The Spirit must call and regenerate us prior to our having faith and repentance. That transformation affects the whole man, mind, will, emotions, and all the other human words, heart, 
um, motivation, all that. John six forty four. Um, is that no one could come to me unless the Father draws him? Is that right? Yep. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Ezekiel 36, that's the dry bones, right? God regenerating the bones. <clears throat> okay. Um, what it does not mean. Uh, the real issue of the Reformation surrounding this was, okay, nobody was denying the need for God's grace, I don't think. Um, Catholics believe in grace. It's in the Bible. It's really hard to just like completely miss the entire concept. But the question was, is it grace plus something else? Is it grace plus the intercession of a priest or confession or indulgences or showing up at Mass and taking the, the bread? Or, you know, like, what is there something else that has to be added to um, the, the, the equation, right? Like, if you're making a pot of soup, did God put everything in the soup? Or did we throw in some celery and some other stuff to just make it better soup? Okay. Sounds crazy when you think about it that way, but that's kind of what the, that's what the, the debate was. Um, do we need something else to be saved? Is there any kind of human ability or effort or works needed for God to save us? So was it 100% God? Um, theologians talk about this as monergism, right? Is God the only active um, force in our justification. Um, there's a danger even, and this is something that you see really commonly today in, in like the modern American church. Without realizing it, a lot of people in the evangelical world will say, I'm saved by grace alone. But the problem is they think of faith as a work. They would never say that, but they, um, you know, I'm not really saved unless I take the step to walk down the aisle to receive Christ or... Um, you know, even though most evangelicals would say baptism doesn't save, they kind of treat it like it's a work unto salvation or like an act of faith that, you know, faith becomes something that's viewed as, as a work necessary for salvation. We're going to talk more about what faith alone means next time, but um, there is a danger there. So, um, and the second thing, what it does not mean. Um, this is an error that that people have fallen into and still do. Uh, is universalism? You know, God is gracious to all mankind, to all people in this way. Okay, so if it's not dependent on me or you or anybody else, then you know, surely God's just going to save everybody in the end. Um, or why doesn't He? Maybe the question that it starts with, and then it's like, well, he must because he's got a love. So he's, he's going to show unmerited favor to some. Why would he show it to all of us? And if it doesn't depend on us, you know, doing something, that's we're going to get more into that with faith next week. But um, that's a distinction that we don't want to make. That's, that's not what sola gratia means. Okay. So uh, why else do you think, or, you know, any other comments, anything I missed that you students of history know about that I don't would... Um, why do you think this doctrine was so important to the Reformation? To a certain extent, learned of also being 
kind of counter to some of the secular thinking philosophies of the time coming off the tail end of the Renaissance and humanism in terms of thinking that man was the apex of everything and that our will and our creative uh, effort was kind of the thing, right? So yeah. maybe that's also an important distinction, not just because of the, uh, the influence of the church, but also the church's reaction to you know, secular philosophy, quote-unquote secular philosophy. Because, I mean, I mean, the whole crux of it, right? Because, like, so great, so I'm married in favor, so the opposite of that would be what? Married in disfavor, right? <laughs> Which is kind of like our default position uh, outside of Christ. So the question to me wouldn't really be, uh, you know, why weren't more people saved or why aren't more people saved or why aren't some saved? The question really would be why are any? Why, why wasn't this just scrapped and started over again? You know, so it still yep. kind of had <clears throat> at the apex of his own situation rather than being subject to the creator and the creator order. Mm, that's good. I should incorporate that set today because today's sermon is um, God, that would have fit right in too. Because it's Spanish, I can't change it. <laughs> maybe I'll maybe I'll wing it. We'll see if I get there and it fits and I'll just slow down. Later. Like that was a big thing for me because I didn't understand. Okay, if you created you created this whole thing, you did all this thing, and there's some here that you created specifically for destruction, essentially. And after kind of, I think the whole immersion thing, you look at the entire situation, you look at the entire context that the fact that any are pulled out, that any are preserved, that any are saved for a new creation, that's significant, you know. And that's that's something that just shows how upside down we approach so many things. Well, you guys, you get the premium extra because you're here early and because I appreciate that. But um, so the sermon today, the Philistines have the ark and they quickly realize they don't want it (laughs) because God plagues them. I mean, every city the ark goes to, they like break out in like bubonic plague probably. And so, um, so they just pass it around like a hot potato and then they end up through a really weird plan which uh, I won't get into that, but they, to, I will later, but they, they send it back to Israel. And Israel gets it, and they rejoice, but they end up handling it wrong, just like the Philistines did. And God kills a bunch of them. Israelites. And it's like, God, He's dangerous whether you're a pagan or not. Like, and you look at Israel over and over and over again, and you're like, why are these people the saved? Why are they the chosen? What do, what do they possibly do? Because they're really not any better than pagans. And that's what the Old Testament keeps showing us. is like every time you think maybe they've got this promising, maybe they're going to be better. No, they're not. <laughs> you think, think that would humble us, right? That, that yeah. would give us greater reassurances because it's not about us. It's about our status and our affiliation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, the doctrine should... Humble us. The whole chosen thing should be spoken almost tongue in cheek for us, like it's I'm the I'm the chosen. Yeah. Okay. Um, but why is it that so many Christians still have a hard time accepting this doctrine? Why is it that um, we aren't just like humbled by it and accepting of it, and you know, dependent on God because of it? Like, what? Why is it? Why is it that we still gravitate back towards the kind of the merited favor? Um, 
way of thinking. Maybe because explaining it to other people is hard, so you want to add something to it, make it more rational. You mean like an evangelism? Yeah. What must I do to be saved? Well, God gave me grace. Well, what did you do for it? How do I get it? Yeah. <laughs> what must I do to be saved, right? Mm-hmm. It's easier to explain. Yeah. I mean, just like in the garden, though, right? It's always reorganizing it in terms of your own grid and your own to-do list. Yeah. Like, surely that's not the case. Surely, surely we can do this. What can we do? You know, it's kind of like the fall spot, right? I mean, think about it. Like, when you hear people, or when you hear how to present the gospel, and I've never really been in evangelism classes or anything like that, but I've heard some and been around some, and it's always like, well, here's how you present the information to solicit a response, and then you push a response. Mm-hmm. But it's not so much response, I don't think, that you're looking for as much as it is you're making a proclamation and you're looking for the reaction or something. I don't know, maybe it's a difference, but I'm saying. That's just part of the fall, right? We think it's, what can we do? We're in control. It's our decision. It's our, it's for us. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, throughout history, this has been to some degree true of all cultures, but I look at our culture and I think that we are extremely performance-driven. Um... I mean, it's pushed at home, it's pushed at school, it's pushed at workplace. Everything's about performance. And so it's very difficult in that environment to accept the possibility that something comes to us completely as a gift, um, unearned. It's kind of the point, I think, of the parable um, that Jesus tells of the generous landowner. It's like, I mean, the guys who worked all day are, are pissed that the guys who worked for an hour and get the same wage even though they agreed to it because it goes against the grain of culture like the way we and, I, and it could be spiritually too just that ingrained merited thing but um, but I see it in my kids I see it you know like even though I'm trying so hard not to raise little Pharisees it doesn't matter what I do they, that's just how they think that's why they're not here right because you're already talking about them. that's <laughs> I'm proud of them for not, you know, feeling like they had to show up. So it's not. I would love for them to be here, but it, but but yeah, I do see it. Though I see them get so frustrated when they when they fail, yeah. or when they are afraid they're disappointing me, or um, it speaks to that that desire to to measure up. Which, in some ways, you know, it's not. This is where we get things twisted. God created the world in six days and stepped back and said, it is very good, right? He was proud of his work. He was proud of what he did. And we're created in his image. And so there's a sense in which you can do, you can perform well and be pleased with it and say, I worked hard and I accomplished this and it's a good thing. The danger becomes when we start looking at other people's work and comparing ourselves to it. Um, when it becomes kind of this competitive need 
to outperform others, which is very indicative of our culture. And so, um, so it's you know it's one thing to be proud of something that I've accomplished. It's another thing to never feel like I'm doing enough because I look at everybody else around me and measure myself based on their performance or or feel arrogant that I'm better than. See, that's where it gets twisted. And I think there's, you could spend a whole, you could write a dissertation on that probably uh, in the Bible. But in what ways have we tried to compromise the doctrine of grace alone in our Christian lives? So think about um, specific to your walk with Christ uh, what things might you have, um, or might we have used to um, muddy the waters of Christ alone? Well, I know I shared last week that um, you know, there's times where I can just uh, enter seasons of just despair, just spiritually, and it's usually in those times that I feel myself. Um, Kind of just dwelling on, oh, I did this bad thing that I shouldn't have done, or I didn't do this thing that was good that I should have done. Um, and you know, what, what John said is like, ever since the fall, we have um, wanted to be God. And even in this having a regenerated heart that we still find ourselves in pride, thinking that somehow we fit into this equation that uh, my uh, being right before the Lord, I have to. Um, you know, Jesus did a great thing, but I have to do a little bit something to make me right before the Lord. Um, but when I find myself there, I, I'm reminded of what Paul wrote that, you know, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit and now being perfected by the flesh? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's never me to begin with. Um, and, you know, it's always been. Um, God's grace, and it's just hard for us as you know, prideful humans to to find rest in that, and not trust in ourselves to be holy in ourselves. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Uh, the man that discipled me early in my Christian uh, walk was um, one of the things that he taught me was that you can learn a lot by evaluating your own prayers in hindsight. And so the way I talked to God revealed a lot about my heart. And as I looked at it, especially early on, and I still do this sometimes. 20 years later, uh, more than 20 years later, um, I will talk to God not as a loving father who disciplines me, but as someone who's constantly disappointed in me, someone who I need to appease, someone who um, you know, is kind of looking over my shoulder, shaking his head constantly, and like, and I'll find myself 
not necessarily repentant, but just like apologetic and promising to do better. And like, there's something about the way that I talked to God, especially early on, that just showed I didn't necessarily think about my relationship with Him as being grounded in grace. So you can look at your prayers and kind of think about, ask yourself the question, how am I talking to God? What does it reveal about how I see this, about my performance related to, you know, or my sanctification? What is it that I'm depending on? Does it sound like I'm depending on myself to pull myself up by my bootstraps and get better? Um, is a good, helpful question to ask. Um, Unwarranted confidence in human ability is a product of fallen human nature. So we have this propensity, this um, tendency to um, depend on self. This false confidence now fills the evangelical world. So saying that this, this is in the church, not just in the world. From the self-esteem gospel to the health and wealth gospel, from those who have transformed the gospel into a product to be sold and centers into consumers who want to buy, to others who treat Christian faith as being true simply because it works. This silences the doctrine of justification regardless of the official commitments of our churches. Another way to say that is that kind of the American pragmatism has made its way into our theology, right? That we are... Um, we're looking for the next, you know, the next like prayer of Jabez or the next, uh, you know, the next, you know, big lifeway boom or like something to really just kind of chicken soup feed my soul and or whatever. Right? I mean, there's 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 this um, this worldly, human, selfish, sinful thing that's kind of made its way into the church, and if we're not very diligent about thinking about it. I mean, it affects every church and every pastor that I know, including myself, to an extent. Just this consumer mentality. Um, so. Any comments about that stuff? Or that, or that quote? Have you seen this to be true? I like what you said about pragmatism. That's dangerous thing what pragmatism is because it depends on what the objective is. Yeah. It's like you're saying you want to feed your soul, whatever that means, versus you want to know God, enjoy Him, glorify Him in a deeper way. Those two very different objectives. You know? <coughs> but I think that's one thing, too, is, is, is reinvigoration and a re, not re education, but it's a re proclamation of what the objective is for us. Why, why, what is our day in, day out objective? What is it we're here to do? Yeah. It's not to be at peace. Crazy as that sounds, it's to know God, to glorify Him, to enjoy Him, mm. to have strength in Him. And the examples that we have of people that have done that successfully are not very. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not Makeda, or isn't he one of the writers that you know, had any part of like what you were talking about, the chicken soup, the 
old kind of motif? Or oh, he's, he's a great writer. He wrote some really, really uh, tear-jerking gospel books. Um, back my faith folks, I'm not trying to make it serious comments. No, but it's just like, yeah, but once... Once somebody becomes popular, people just eat it up with a spoon, whatever they put out. I mean, you know, like... Um, and and you got publishers pushing for more books, you know, because they're making money off of it. Is that what you mean? I don't know, but it sounds good. Yeah. But I mean, it's all part of the failure. You know, I think you know, a lot of stuff seems to fill the, the shelves and the airways with more temporary, kind of getting you over a hump. Yeah, kind of self-confidence, kind of just make you feel better about the situation. Yeah, well, there's a reason why Joel Osteen is the biggest pastor in America. Oh, yeah. He's he's only ever saying things that people want to hear. Yeah, yeah, and he says it well. Yeah, oh, and he's serious. got a great smile. It can be serious, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't like the smile person. It's not, it's not seven. <laughs> <laughs> No comment. You know, uh, I had one of our church members told me one time that she said, I really like your preaching. I said, thank you. She was like, you remind me of Joel Osteen. What? Oh, no. Okay. Thank you. I didn't know what to say to that. I was like, I mean, I don't want you to not listen to me, so I'm going to go with it. I don't I don't know whether, you know, it was early on. But. You know, Paul was about that. You weren't about this. There are times where you know you're flipping through uh, YouTube or Facebook, and you know that guy, Stephen Furtick. Uh huh. You know he'll start going, "Ooh, ah!" And it's like, "Man, I feel Jesus up." Yeah, yeah. And then you then you actually listen. To somebody says, "Go, whoa, bro, what?" You know. Yeah. But you get caught up in that that delivery, and it's motivational, and it's like, "Hey, right yeah. on, yeah." Yeah. Yeah. It's what our itching ears want to hear. All right, last question. What is the relationship between grace and sanctification? So we've talked a lot about um, really more the justification side of things. You know, salvation is by grace alone. But I, I want to throw this in there just as an added because we, you know, we talk a lot about Christian growth beyond kind of the moment of born again. What, what does that look like? Why is grace still the foundation of our growth? You've already kind of spoken to it in Galatians when you mentioned. Well, because it's not like it's not like he it's not like he gets you on the bike and then pushes you out, you know, into the driveway yeah. and knocks the training wheels off and says, "All right, come home and the lights come on," you know. Yeah. And as uh, he started it, he continues it, facts it, he completes it. Like what Stewart said earlier, he's called Stewart, laid it out. Yeah, I mean, I've heard it said, and I think it's probably somewhere in the confession said to this extent, but basically our justification is the ground of our sanctification. The person and work of Jesus is the anchor of both our justification and our sanctification. Okay, One is an act, the other is a a work, ongoing work of God's Spirit. But um, in other words... I mean, Jesus described himself as the gate or the door, right? But it would be inaccurate for us to think about that as, okay, we walk into the kingdom through Jesus, but then we keep ourselves in the kingdom by our own works. You know, like, 
I became a Christian 20-something years ago. That's in the past. You know, Jesus is all the way back there. No. God's grace is the floor that I'm standing on. Um, because it was His work, you know, and, and, and because, I mean, He's never going to undo, like if He, if he says... I've punished Christ for your sins. He's not going to repunish me for my sins. But that continues to be the floor that I'm standing on. And so my growth has to be held up by His grace or else it's not going to happen. So, helpful. Yeah, because we still, we still fall into that ditch, you know, where it's like, all right, Jesus, my sin, you took on the cross. Now, starting over again, but now it's time you know, I think it's still I, I fall into that. I don't notice that I realize that I fall into that. But. Yeah. Cool. All right. Somebody want to close with some prayers? We got a little time for coffee and chat.